We're in this series called uh, The Great Exchange, which is a code word for the gospel. And we've been talking about how um, in the fall, which is the, the biblical language for what happened when sin entered the world, that humanity was in this exalted place of, of right relationship with God. But as we uh, rebelled against God and sin entered into this world, we fell. And, and we've, we've squandered what that, that, that place of, uh, that we had, that relationship we had. That we, we had a, a relationship with God that was marked by, by, by goodness and by beauty and by truth. And that in the fall, we've squandered that. We've, we've lost that. We've fallen from our, from our, our place. And, we, and, and, and now humanity is in a broken place. Humanity is in rebellion against God. But Christ has come, right, to, 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 to make this great exchange. To, that he's, he's come into the depths of our fall so that we could be lifted up to his exalted place as, as a son of God, as an heir. And so um, we're looking at different aspects of this exchange, of, of just how uh, amazing it is that uh, what Jesus has accomplished. We're, 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 we're seeking to understand more fully just how great his salvation is and to, to embrace it more fully and to not live in, in the fall anymore, that to, 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 to renounce the, the fall and, and real, uh, understanding that Jesus has, has taken all of the effects of the fall for us and he's, he's lifted us back to our, our place of, of being sons and daughters of God. So this morning we're talking about guilt and innocence, that when we fell, we became guilty before God. We became guilty. We broke the law of God, and therefore, we are guilty. Sin is a broken relationship with God. That we have failed to fulfill God's expectations, and instead we've transgressed the limitations. We've, we've stepped over the limitations that he set. In the Garden of Eden, that was eating from this tree, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Or we're guilty because we've failed to do what he has positively commanded us to do. And so the breaking of the law results in a state of guilt or a liability to be, to be punished. Now, this is probably one of the biggest hang-ups for, 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 for people in our culture about Christianity. Um, as I engage in conversations with people who are considering following Jesus, um, or maybe who aren't, and I'm trying to convince them to consider, this whole issue of guilt is often a stumbling block. And maybe that's where you're at today. Maybe you're like, am I really guilty? I don't feel guilty before God. If there is a God, I'm sure he's a God of love. And therefore, he would certainly accept a good person like me. But if there is a God, there's the, the one thing I know about him is that, the, that he would be a God of love, and therefore, he would accept someone like me. You know, in our culture where, you know, you get to decide for yourself what's right and what's wrong, we don't 
feel guilty about anything, or we, we feel like we shouldn't feel guilty about anything, rather. Guilt is something to resist, because after all, there is no ultimate moral law that you're breaking. And so if you feel guilty, that's something to be resisted. Don't feel guilty about that. Don't be motivated by guilt. Don't don't feel guilt. Guilt, all guilt, is something to be resisted in our culture. But if we really get down to it, everyone has to agree that we must not resist all guilt. Some guilt is actually positive and right and good and true. As much as some would want to say that guilt is just this psychological abnormality that is to be resisted and to be gotten rid of because, after all, morality is subjective, no one can actually live that way. Listen, if Adolf Hitler had feelings of guilt, I'm not saying he did, but if he ever had feelings of guilt, should he have resisted them? Or should he have said, what I'm doing is wrong and I should stop? You can't have it both ways. And so, we actually need a standard. We need a code. We need a law by which we can discern which guilt is true and appropriate, which guilt is false and inappropriate. And so the very first um, point I want to establish, especially for, for those of us who, who may be struggling with this whole law, what's the law and guilt, and we, what, what's, what's the Bible's take on that? What, I don't like this law language. I don't like this guilt language. Well, what does the Bible teach about the law, the law of God? And, and how does the law of God relate to the grace of God? We often, at Cornerstone, we often talk about God's grace, and his, which means his unmerited favor, that we don't have to earn his, his love, that he just loves us because he loves us. Not because of our performance, not because of our law-keeping or our lack of law-breaking, but just he loves us because it's in his very nature to love. And so we talk about grace, but how does grace then relate to law, the law of God? And the way I'm going to put it this morning is, is this, that the grace of God and the law of God must always be joined together. They must always be joined together. That in the scriptures, the law of God and the grace of God are both ultimate, equally ultimate. That John chapter 1, you may recall if you were here in the winter, John chapter 1 Jesus came full of grace and truth. And as we'll see this morning, hopefully, the cross is the ultimate expression of both law and grace. The cross of Jesus ultimately displays God's um, exaltation of his law and also of his grace at the very same time. But human nature is to strive to be one or the other. That we feel like we either have to be a, a, like a, a law person or a grace person. We either have to be all about the law and what's right and good and fight for it. Or we just are all about accepting people and grace and love and groovy vibes, I guess, right? Which is why uh, humanity tends towards either religion 
or irreligion, of, of discarding religion, and let's just, get, let's just all get along, and let's just all be good people. And so we have fundamentalists, or we have relativists. We have, but we can't ever bring these two together. We can't ever marry grace and law together. And what I want to hopefully convince you of this morning is that in the scriptures, both grace and law are ultimate. And that if we don't understand how grace and law relate to each other as equals and as equally important, we've actually failed to miss the heart of God. That if we can understand this, if we can see this, we can actually see into the very heart of God, into the very heart of the gospel of Jesus. Now, law and gra- and what I'm not saying is law and grace are the same thing. I'm saying they're both different, but they're, they're equal. They are different. If I promise to give you $100, come and get it. All you have to do is to receive the gift is just believe it, right? If I say, hey, I've got $100 for you, come and get it. All to, in order to receive that gift, all you need to, to do is believe the promise. And you'll receive it, right? That's how grace works. But if I promise to give you $100 if you mow my lawn, you might say, hey, he's got a small lawn. That's a pretty good deal. But there's, it's still conditional. Now it's conditional. It's offered. The $100 gift is not really a gift anymore. It's offered on the basis of law. That you have to do something in order to receive the promise. And so... Law and grace are two different ways of offering something. And so something can be offered only by law or only by grace, because, but because they're offered differently, then they're received differently as well, right? If it's offered by law, you receive it by your works, by fulfilling the conditions. If it's offered by grace, you receive it by faith, by just believing the promise. So is the law of God opposed to the grace of God? Galatians 3.13 says, absolutely not. Absolutely not. God forbid, absolutely not. And so it's this source of, of a significant point of apparent contradiction of Christianity. The gospel actually brings law and grace together in a way that no human philosophy or religion even attempts. And because we think law and grace are, are fundamentally opposed to each other, we come up with worldviews, ways of looking at this world and ways of interpreting this world that are based on either law or grace. And when you bring God into the picture, then our, you know, our relationship with God, people have trended to one of these two camps as well. That you are either relating to God on the basis of law or you're relating to God on the basis of grace. But you have to pick. You can't do one or the other. And so you have, you know, a, a church of grace. You know, is, is their message is God radically accepts everyone. No matter who you are and what you've done, he makes no judgments on you. He welcomes everyone. And the only people to be rejected are those who condemn other people which is more than a little ironic. All right, the only people to be rejected are those who condemn others. So we'll condemn you, you condemner. Right? 
But the problem, so the problem with the world, according to the Church of Grace, the problem with the world is that people aren't free. That until we can unconditionally accept everyone the way that God does, people will oppress each other and control each other, and the world will descend into chaos and hatred. So. Opposed to that is the church of law, where God has standards. If you fall short of those standards, you're going to be punished. These are the beliefs that you need to have. If you don't have these beliefs, to hell with you. This is the moral code you must abide by. If you don't, join those unbelievers. The problem with the world isn't that people aren't free. The problem with the world, according to the church of law, is that people aren't good, that they do bad things. Now, this, this can escalate to the, the level of society as well. That a society becomes ultimately based on law or it becomes a society based on grace. But here's the thing. Both are impossible. Both are impossible. Until the last few hundred years, here's your history lesson. I should have warned you. I'm, I am asking you to think this morning, but I'm hoping to do a decent job teaching, explaining, but I am asking you to think clearly. Until the last few hundred years, it was generally understood that there could not, you couldn't have a cohesive society, you couldn't have a, a flourishing culture unless everyone agreed on what the religion was. Basically, unless you could, everyone could agree what the law of God was, it was ridiculous to think that you could have a kind of pluralistic society that we're actually attempting today. That, that it was understood everyone has to agree what's right or how else can you make decisions? How will laws be made? How can we live? And so what this led to, though, unfortunately, was the wars of religion, right? Where people said, this is what's right and this is what's good and God's on our side, so let's kill everyone else. So that we can have this uniform society. And so let's kill those unbelievers. Let's wipe. The world would be a better place if we wiped them off the face of the map. So let's do it. This went on for a few hundred years. People began thinking, hey, this approach really doesn't work for society. Where people say, hey, God's on my side. Let's wipe everyone else out. And so because, you know... And so, and so what they did is they moved completely in the opposite direction. Now we think we can't have a cohesive society if you do believe in an absolute law of God. Right? In our society, the dangerous people are those who have this absolute moral truth. The dangerous, oppressive people are those not who disagree with you, but those who disagree with anyone. And so the only way people will love and care for each other is if we decide that all truth is relative, moral truth, absolute truth, that it's all relative. Everyone can decide what's right and wrong for themselves. Let's just embrace everyone. Let's make no judgments. The problem with this is that we're actually headed for a crisis. I don't think we've, we haven't quite reached there yet, but we're heading there. We see glimpses of it, actually, at, at some points. A couple of weeks ago, maybe you... Did you pick up on this news story um, in Canadian culture how there were some studies coming out of, of some immigrant populations in Canada and examining birth rates among immigrant populations? And it was found that um, the birth rate for boys was like up to 500 times higher than it should be in some immigrant populations. 
Did anyone catch this? You can nod your heads if you're... Anyone read the newspapers? It was all over the news for like a couple of days. And, and so basically what they're saying is, is that the, some of these immigrant populations are um, selecting boys and selectively having abortions if they're girls. Right? That's happening in Canada today. It was, it was crazy. It was so interesting to read how the media was portraying some of the studies because we can't be outraged at abortion, right? That's legal. That's right. That's good. A woman has a right to choose after all for any and every reason, any and all reasons, right? And yet there was this outrage that, well, they shouldn't, they shouldn't choose based on gender. That, that's wrong. I mean, if the baby has Down syndrome, that's okay. But, gen- I mean, so there was this dance going on of, we kinda, we're not supposed to be outraged about this, but it feels so wrong, and we don't know why, and so let's just bring it up, and let's, let's engage in dialogue with these immigrant populations, right? So we, what we ha- when we have a society where we have no basis for law. We have no basis to make judgments about what's right and wrong. And so when something doesn't quite feel right, we're not quite sure how to have those, di- how, how to have those dialogues about what's right, what's wrong, what's good, what's true, what's ugly, what's evil. We don't know how to do that. And so what we're heading for, I'm no prophet, but what we're heading for is that if there is no law of God, if there is no absolute there's, there's, there's absolutely no way you can figure out what's good. You don't know what a good law is. You don't know what is just without a law of God. And so what's going to happen is we're going to descend to playground arguments. When you get an argument on the playground, how do you decide? When someone says something, hey, you can't do that. What do the kids say? Says who? Right? Says who? And the bigger who, whoever has the bigger who wins the day. That's where we're heading as a society. Says who? If there's no law, if everything's relative, who says what's right? Who says what's wrong? A society based on grace, of embracing everyone, of just everything's relative. Let's just make no judgments. That doesn't work either. It doesn't work either. You can't live that way. You can't live that way. And so a society on law doesn't work. A society on grace doesn't work. An individual life on law only doesn't work. An individual life on grace only doesn't work. It can't work. Here's the good news. The God of the Bible knows this. The God of the Bible knows this. In fact, he says that in his very nature that neither law or grace is more primary than the other. And he says, don't you ever feel like you have to choose between them. They're both right. They're both right. Don't choose. They must be together. One of the very foundational passages of the, of the Hebrew Scriptures in the Old Testament is Exodus 33 and 34. In Exodus 33 and 34, Moses is leading the people of Israel out of Egypt, out of slavery, and into the promised land. It's this great picture of how, how God is leading his people from bondage to a, to a place of freedom and flourishing. A land flowing with milk and honey. One of my favorite images of the, old Bible, of the whole Bible. And, and, and so 
And in, in the wilderness, God's revealing himself to his people. In Exodus 33, Moses says this. It should be on the screen here. Moses says, please, Lord, show me your glory. Show me your glory. Show me what's ultimate. Show me what you're all about. And God said to Moses, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. So let's look at, this, look at that request and God's answer there for a second. Moses says, show me your glory. I want to see your glory. I want to see how great you are. I want to, see, I want to know what you're all about, God. And God says, I'm going to make all my goodness pass before you. And I'll proclaim my name. Those three things, your glory, my goodness, my name, are, are synonyms. They're, they're the same thing. I will show you my goodness. I will declare my name. And that is my glory. So here's what happens. Exodus 34. Next slide there, Steve. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. And then the Lord passed before him and proclaimed. He proclaimed this. And this is the most quoted passage in the whole Hebrew scripture. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Look at this passage. Anything stand out to you? Anything seem contradictory? Right in the middle. I'm merciful, I'm gracious, I abound in steadfast love. I forgive iniquity and transgression and sin. I am a forgiving God. I forgive sin, but I will by no means clear the guilty. I forgive, but I will never forgive. I'm a forgiving God who never forgives. Doesn't doesn't it look like that's what it says? Do you see grace and law? You see grace and law and God saying, I am all about grace. I am, I am slow to anger. I abound in steadfast love and faithfulness. I, I, I love to forgive. I'll forgive any kind of sin, iniquity, transgression, whatever it is you did, all sin, I'll forgive it. I am a forgiving God. Next line. I by no means will clear the guilty. I am a God of law. If you're guilty, you're going to have to pay. My law doesn't get broke for nothing. Law and grace, right in the very character of God. What we feel is so contradictory that you have to pick one or the other. God says, don't you ever feel like you have to pick. I am a God of grace and a God of law at the very same time. He says, we must hold these together. Every sin must get punished. It must be paid. My law demands it. And yet, my goodness is that I love to forgive. Now, here's the thing. We, again, we, liked, we, we feel like we have to separate them. We feel like, and, and every one of us does by nature, either by personality or culture or background, for whatever reason, we all are either tend to be a law person or we tend to be a grace person. We resonate more with... Hey, toe the line. Man up. 
Or we're like, ah, groovy vibes, let's get along, right? Let's just embrace people. It's okay. Let's forget about it, right? Like, so every one of us feel like we're, we, we tend towards one or the, the other, but we must hold them together. God is a God of love and justice, a God of law and promise. He's a God of holiness and compassion. He is a God who punishes and is compassionate. And we think you can't have it both ways. You're either good in your justice, so you won't forgive, or you have to be good in your grace, so you forgive everyone and punish no one. But the gospel of Jesus Christ is that God is a God of law and a God of grace, and that these two come together. These two come together. How do grace and law come together? How does grace and law come together in the scripture? We, we've just seen it's in the very nature of God, the very self-revelation of who God is. He's saying, I'm law and grace at the very same time. How do they come together? Well, theologically, they come together in what we call the substitutionary atonement of Jesus and the truth of justification by faith. Substitutionary atonement. Three Bible verses. I've got them on the screen. Galatians 3.13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. 2 Corinthians 5.21. God made him sin who knew no sin, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. 1 Peter 3.18, For Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. The substitutionary atonement, where Jesus lived the life you should have lived. He perfectly fulfilled the law of God. And yet he paid the law's demands. Because he's a God of grace. And so he's our substitute. He takes our place. And he atones. He makes payment. For the punishment of our sin. Listen to this quote. It's one of my favorite quotes. And I've never used it in a sermon yet. It's by a guy named Horatius Bonar. It's a great name. It's an even better quote. It's on the screen. It is by Christ's substitution, and especially at the moment of his death upon the cross, that God's love and law are both satisfied. He was smitten to satisfy the justice of God. It pays for sins. And yet at the same time, the love of God, it secures our salvation. Romans 3.26 says that God might be both just and justifier of those who believe. See that in Romans 3.26? God is both just and justifier. He's both just and gracious. He's law and grace. He doesn't break the law in order to forgive. He keeps his law while forgiving. He doesn't have to ignore the law in order to be gracious. He is gracious through through the upholding the law at the very same time. Both love and law have triumphed. The one has not given way to the other. Each has kept its ground. No, each has come. Each has triumphed. Sorry. Both love and law have triumphed. The one has not given way to the other. Each has kept its ground. No, each has come from the conflict honored and glorified. Never has there been love like this love of God. So large, so lofty, so intense, so self-sacrificing. 
Yet never has the law been seen so pure, so broad, so glorious, so unyielding. There's been no compromise. Law and love have both had their full scope. Love has never been more truly love, and the law has never been more truly law. Love has never been so truly love as at the cross of Jesus. And law, law has never been more truly law than at the cross of Jesus. And because of the substitutionary atonement, we are justified by faith in Jesus. Justification, it's a biblical word. It's a Bible word. We don't use it a lot, so I want to explain it. Justification is the restoration of an individual to a state of righteousness. Righteousness is living up to the standards that are set for a relationship. A righteous person is one who has been declared by a judge to be free from guilt. And so justification is a restoration of an individual to a state of righteousness. To be free from guilt, it's a declaration of the judge. The task of the judge is to condemn the guilty and acquit the innocent. And so justification is this legal status where we're changed from guilty to not guilty. Where we we are declared innocent, just, righteous in God's sight. Of being viewed by God as fully meeting the divine requirements, of fully meeting God's law. Now how can God declare that we have no penalty to pay for sin and that we have, uh, you know, we have the merits of perfect righteousness if, in fact, we are guilty sinners. How can God declare us to be not guilty but righteous when we are, in fact, unrighteous? The answer is by the atonement of Jesus, that he got what we deserved, so we get what he deserved. And so we can be simultaneously righteous and a sinner. In practice, I'm still sinning. But in God's sight, I'm righteous. I'm innocent. I'm free from all guilt. I'm free from guilt. Wayne Grudem says, justification is an instantaneous legal act of God in which he thinks of our sins as forgiven and as Christ's righteousness as belonging to us and declares us to be righteous in his sight. There, Romans 8.1, there is now... No condemnation for those who are in Christ. And so that means, friend, that that sin you committed on Friday, you know that one? Paid for. Not to your account. If you believe in Christ. Because God is good. He doesn't clear the guilty, but he doesn't take two payments for sin either. Either Jesus paid for it, or you will. I'm gonna, I know some of you have brunch to get to. I'll skip a bit. Why did God choose faith as the instrument for receiving justification? We believe in justification by faith and faith alone. Because faith is the one attitude of the heart that is the exact opposite of depending on ourselves. I give up on myself and I simply receive. E. Stanley Jones says, grace makes me strong because grace makes me humble enough to receive. Faith is just simply receiving. Because it's offered by grace. The work of Christ is offered by grace. If I give you a hundred, I'll give you a hundred bucks, come and get it. I'll give you Christ's righteousness, come and get it. You can only receive it by believing the promise. The only way to receive the offer of grace is to receive the promise. And so bottom line this morning, there is a law, there is a standard which we have failed to meet. We have transgressed. We have broken the law of God and therefore we are guilty. 
And we have exchanged a, a relationship of innocence for guilt. But God, and God will by no means clear the guilty, but God is a God of compassion and grace. So he sent his son who lived out the requirements of the law, who paid the penalty of the law for us as our substitute so that he received what you deserve so that you can receive what he deserves and be declared righteous and innocent and blameworthy, blameless in his sight with respect to the law. You see, when a relationship is tainted by guilt, how does it change? How does a relationship change when you're tainted by guilt? When you have offended someone, when you have wronged someone, how does it change your relationship with that person? You love being around them? Say you're a criminal, you've broken the law, and you just got pulled over from speed, for speeding. Does your heart start beating a little faster? Because you're thinking not only of the offense of breaking the law, but you're thinking of the offense. Do they know about that? Do they know about what I've done? Your relationship with, with, the, with the authority is a relationship of fear, a relationship of avoidance. You just don't want to have to come in contact with police officers if you have a guilty conscience. If you have wronged a friend, you hide from them. Guilt causes us to run and so, friends, are you running from God today? Are you keeping him at a distance? And if you are, could it be that you're not embracing the truth of the atonement and of justification? Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your great kindness. Thank you that you are a God of immense love and faithfulness. Thank you that you by no means clear the guilty. Thank you that in you, grace and law come together. How... How unsearchable is your wisdom, O oh God? What we think is impossible is possible with you. And so we praise you. And Father, I pray that if there's any here feeling the, the, the load of guilt being pressed down, thinking of how they failed, thinking of all the stuff they've messed up, Father, would you re reveal Christ and his atonement, reveal the truth of justification, and help us simply to believe your promise and to live out of your promise, for we pray in Jesus' name.